Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah. Wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. Uh, we're here today with a, bit, with a round table of some really interesting uh, individuals, some whom you know and some whom you might not know. So the first thing is that Alex brought in, has uh, invited for us a guest, an old friend of his, that they met through uh, Sheikh Nuh Sohbaz, uh, Sheikh Salman Yunus. He's a New Yorker. He studied in Jordan about five years. And then now studied in, now went to Oxford, lives in Banbury. Banbury. Okay. Do you do Iqlab on it, Banbury? Or is it Banbury? <laughs> you got to get the Iqlab, right? Banbury. Right, Shilly? <laughs> yeah, There's yeah. Iqlab is applied yeah, there. Course, Noon second with the bet. <laughs> with a fetha. So, <laughs> Sheikh Saman Yunus, you know him on Twitter. He's uh, he got a lot of writings. Do you have a, any other place where you put your writings? No. Nothing yet. Which is just Twitter. And you have classes on Seekers Hub. He's very close friends with Sheikh Faraz Urbani, who hasn't been in New Jersey for a while. What's what's the what's the situation? Can you send him a text message? Can you can you text to Canada? That's good, but he's got to come down to Jersey at some point. Huh? I figured he does a, a like annual tour. I guess I'm going to invite him now that you say so. But so uh, Sheikh Saman is here, gave the khutbah today at the masjid and will be with us tonight. Sheikh Abdullah bin Hamad Ali is on the way. He's stuck in New York traffic. I told him you, you, you forgot about New York traffic. That's what happens when you live in uh, California for so long. He's in the Holland Tunnel right now, stuck. I could have. Uh, so now we have, uh, sh- then we have Professor to be. Wasim Shiliwala, who spent the last like 30 years of his life in Princeton University. Okay, you hang out with Michael Cook? Hang out is, is uh, not know. the right word. <laughs> yeah. Cross I mean, paths with Michael Cook? Definitely. I've taken, I've taken some seminars with him. So. He's made Toba from his book, his ridiculous book. I have to say it's ridiculous. Um, I mean, that's, that's, I mean, he's definitely changed his approach. He has to because it's yeah. ridiculous. That book, I mean, you can't say it, but I can say it. And, and Patricia Crone, mm-hmm. the two of them are very famous for writing a, a book that is of utmost absurdity. They mm-hmm. should be embarrassed, actually. Mm-hmm. He had to go into a cave and write a 500-book thesis on commanding right and forbidding wrong to make up for the nonsense that he wrote. What did he write? Could you summarize for everyone here? What it is? Sure. Um, I mean, I'm pretty sure the book you're referring to is called Hagarism. Yeah. And the major um, conceit of the book is that it's an attempt to write about the history of early Islam yeah. without reference to Muslim sources. Mm-hmm. So the tagline of the book is like, this is a book written by infidels for infidels. Okay. And you Well, know, at least they got that right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the main, and the main thing is that, like, they're trying to be provocateurs. It's clear from the style. And they're trying to do something that was um, very, in a sense, you know, um, new for the field of Islamic studies. Yeah. Like, they felt like people like Montgomery Watt um, or others were being way too sympathetic to what the Islamic tradition has to say yeah. and that you need more critical voices. So they went to the opposite end of the spectrum. Um, and I mean, in both cases, you know, both scholars have um, have moved on from that work in the past, but it obviously left a huge mark on the field. And, 
you know, some of these debates last to this day, and you'll still see that there are scholars out there who, like say they're talking about the Quran, they don't want to look at what the tafsir tradition has to say. They'll try and find, you know, um, other texts from around that same time period, maybe even before um, what they'll call like the late antique time period, and try and, you know, come up with what the Quran is actually about without having to rely on what Muslims have had to say. Okay. So these sorts of things, they're obviously still there. Okay. So uh, he hasn't written anything after Commanding Right, which I actually, believe it or not, I loved. And I pick up that book on a regular basis, and I look through it. Like, I love that book. He has some annoying comments, I guess, that uh, infidel thing is still in him, that he puts (laughs) some really annoying comments every once in a while. Mm -hmm. But if you can get past that, uh, I can't believe they actually put that as a tagline. Yeah, that's like infidels one of the, infidels. That's one of the first lines in that book. Oh, okay. um, and he also came out with a more recent work called um, Ancient Religions, Modern Politics, which is a comparison between, he gives different cases from Christianity, Islam, and Hinduism, um, like these modern manifestations of like political movements. And the long form, or the to shorten his argument and perhaps maybe not do justice to it, the argument he's trying to make is that the Islamic tradition has more for lack of a better word, material to work with when it comes to building a political vision. Um, so he's, you know, that's sort of one of the things he looks at. Okay. Uh, so he says that the Islamic tradition has n- does not have enough material uh, to build a political vision. No, it does. Oh, it does have. As opposed to Christianity and Hinduism. Oh, I see so what you're saying. So it's like okay. the idea of like, I mean, it's almost like he's making the claim that Islamic fundamentalism has more of a, a ground or a basis in their the text, text I see. to work with. Okay, good, good. And you came across these folks. You have uh, his old colleagues in Oxford. Yeah, actually, one of uh, the colleagues, uh, Corona. 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 Yeah. Which is, uh, her, her student. Come closer. One of um, her, someone she supervised. His name is Robert Horley. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is a professor at Oxford, and I took some classes with him. He actually authored a book that I think convincingly undermines the argument in Hegelism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he has a book called, um, which is I think part of his doctoral dissertation, Seeing Islam as an Ugly Sovereign. Yeah. So what he does is that he has Hold on, could you switch with him real quick? No, no, switch uh, seats with him. He's not picking up for some reason. We're going to have to operate with two of them. So yeah, Hoyland has this book, uh, seeing Islam, seeing Islam as others saw them, and so it's it's a, it's a very th- thick book. I think it's like maybe like four or five hundred pages. Yeah. And so basically, what he does is he gathers all these early non-Muslim sources that make reference to uh, Islam, the rituals of Islam, the Prophet, uh, the history of the uh, the Muslim world from Aramaic, Syriac, uh, Chinese sources. You know, like. Christian, like sorry, Chinese traders who were coming to the Muslim world and describing uh, various practices. And so, what these so- sources basically demonstrated was w- was that a lot of the practices that uh, uh, that are found in the traditional material, in a lot of the history of the traditional material, uh, is actually, you know, borne out in these non-Muslim sources as well, which sort of undermines the the arguments that. Patricia Crona and I guess Michael Cook um, their conclusions in Hagarism which is like Islamist like what some Jewish sect or something like some <laughs> some, some some crazy <laughs> crazy idea <laughs> that they had 
their their thesis was so uh, was such that it was basically Islam was born out of uh, <coughs> ancient mm -hmm. Arab myths that were borrowed from the Christians, right? Yeah, and I mean, and Patricia Krona still maintains some of those. I mean, maybe not the strong thesis, but definitely the weak thesis that you know Islam was not revealed in Mecca. Like this is like it's it started off you know more in the maybe Syrian region. Um, things like that, but you know, so it's. I mean, again, like she's. Uh, so that sort of that those ideas are definitely still being contested within the academy. Um, one actual, another scholar that I think whose work has been really, um, like, I'd say, groundbreaking, and again, this is still a major area of research is on the early Quranic um, manuscripts um, that have been found in places like Sanra. Um, in Yemen, and Behnam Sadiqi is the name of the scholar that I'm thinking of, and he wrote um, a couple of articles based on his study of these um, of these manuscripts, and the basic upshot of them is that they tend to conform to the overall finding or what the overall tradition is saying about the fact that there were these early Quranic variants, um, but it's not something that's you know again like in the absence of material. Um, material evidence, like Orientalists were making all sorts of claims about when, did the, when was the Quran written, you know, what did, what did it say, etc., etc. So he actually, you know, looked at these very early, some of these were, you know, radiocarbon gated to maybe the first century um, after the Prophet them. So I have a question for you. Sure. If they're <coughs> questioning that Islam came from Arabia, and it's only 1400 years ago, so what's their take on Judaism? Like, how much certainty do they have regarding Judaism and its origins and their original location? Because that has immediate political implications. Because mm -hmm. they're saying, well, there's no certainty at all that these people existed, nor that, that they lived in, you know, the land that they claim to be theirs. You know, that's an immediate political implication. So how are they going to say with what do they say about this subject? So I'm not, I, I'm not sure what they specifically would say. The one thing I will say is that the, these, sorts of, um, these sorts of methodological shifts yeah. that happen in Islamic studies, they're usually reflective of shifts that have happened in Jewish and Christian studies. So one way to think about the history of the development of this, this field is the fact that you know, biblical scholars were coming into all sorts of historical problems. Same thing with Jewish scholars where they're trying to figure out what, what can we actually say survives from early Judaism? What can we actually say what the early scriptures were like? And some of them come to like really um, critical, um, skeptical types of conclusions where some of them will be like, well, we don't even know what's, what early Christianity was like. So from that, people will say, well, maybe this is what happened with Islam as well. And that's been sort of the debate that's been happening. And one of the issues is that, well, we can save, well, we have material evidence from very early on. We don't have that much material evidence from like, let's say, within, like during the Prophet Sallallahu lifetime. So based on that, you know, ambiguity, there's a lot of, there's a lot of dispute and contestation. All right, now here's another question. There's one thing about uh, looking at what they say. Do they realize that what they say, as complicated as, or, or as researched as it is, as professional as their books are, as, mu as recognized as they are in academia, 
are, do, do they recognize that they don't matter? Their opinion doesn't matter. Have they recognized that yet? What's their reaction now that, I mean, it's well known that their opinions doesn't matter, except in a field of maybe three or four of their friends. How have they reacted to that? I mean, I don't know. It's, are you talking about the fact that specifically that work has been outdated, like how they're reacting to that? Or you mean in general that, you know, who cares what academics have to say about these sorts of issues? Because once you say something, like, who are you talking to? Like, if I write a book on, hey, Christianity, right, or whatever, give me some, how name something? Judaism, right? I, let's say I write a book, because we never finished the introductions, but we'll get to that. Because sure. <laughs> we got some people who have some interesting things to say as well. Okay. If I write a book on Judaism, and I go and let's say I live in uh, Saudi Arabia, and I write a book on Judaism, right? And I, it could be a really good book, right? Mm. It could be re- in a sense that it's researched. But be, me and my personality, my person as a Muslim, as an Arab, okay? As someone whose political position is known, right? Uh, most of us, right, are around Zionism. And uh, that's that whole situation. And as someone who, let's say I had said some ridiculous thing about Judaism in the past, mm-hmm. right? That it was all, you know, just borrowed from the pharaohs or something. Something, something totally we know is wrong. Now, the world of Judaism, I'm not even near the radar. Sure. Right? So who's listening to me? Other people who Jews don't care about, right? Mm-hmm. So what exactly is, I'm just talking to myself basically yeah. and a couple of my friends, right? Isn't, aren't the, this is, the, those folks are exactly the same thing. The, the analogy is the same. It's the, the analogy is for them, right? Mm-hmm. It's the same exact thing. So my question is like, so they go to the, these conferences, they get published. That's all great. When you go home at night and think to yourself, I put up this great opinion. Too bad no one cares, right? <laughs> like, how does you get, how do you stay motivated? And if you have something to say about that, Salman, you can, uh, you know, pitch in. But I just wonder, like, when you go home at night, right, what do you have to, you know, be proud of or be happy about? Isn't that academia in general? Here. Isn't that academia in general, though? Because... The only people who read these books are other academics. Mm-hmm. And if all of a sudden academia stopped to exist, it wouldn't really affect regular people's lives one way or another. I think that's true. Because it's not, it's not like regular people reading their books or like take, uh, changing their actions based on what those books say. It's, it's really just these guys debating against, among each other. Yeah. It's like a little community. You know, you know what I think it is? I think it's uh, Hollywood or politics. It's like this. If you got looks, you go to Hollywood. <laughs> right? And personality. If you got physique, you go into sports. Okay? Bilal, what are you going into? Deadlifting? <laughs> okay. You go into sports. If you got ambition and nothing else, you go into politics. Right? Like a little bit of smarts, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit of looks. You go into politics. If you got brains, but you don't have anything else, you go into academics, right? But here's the thing, though. Like, I can see a Jewish person in Jewish studies. Other Jews care what he has to say. You're, 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 you're studying Fatawa of India, Wasim. Yeah. yeah. And 
Salman, you're studying Hanafi fiqh, early Hanafi fiqh. Like, we'd pick up that stuff, right? Sure. So you matter. Mm-hmm. You didn't go into some far-off field where you're alre- you, you as a person are rejected mm-hmm. from the field. It's like an evangelical going into gay studies, right? The LGBT department, which what do they call the department in Princeton? Um, the department of, of what is it? Is it part of cultural studies or what? We have a. If I, I want to do a PhD, a limit, yeah. in, if I want to do a PhD in something related to LGBT, yeah, right. Where which department would they put me in? I think there's a department. I mean, there's. I think it's women and gender studies, but I'm not entirely sure what the name of the. Department well, how does that even make sense? Mm-hmm. Like gender should undercut women, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Whatever it is, because yeah. it all doesn't make sense to me anyway. I mean, the but, the the names of the departments are usually they're immaterial, right? That's so immaterial. So I'm coming so from Near Eastern studies, and technically half of my dissertation is South Asian studies. <laughs> you know, things like that. Okay, so yeah. so let's say an ev- evangelical can't go into women and gender. He can write what he wants. No one, no one's reading him, right? Mm-hmm. So you guys are. Is your th- when is your thesis coming out? Inshallah, in a year. In a year for them, but not for the regular readership. For regular readership, then there's a there's a whole process after that where you turn it into a book. You have to sign with an academic press. You're so, going to get me a nice Rootledge $50 uh, bright red. <laughs> <laughs> the hope is, you know, a nice academic press, which will be maybe $35, $30. Okay, like you, Oxford yeah. Press? Yeah, something, you know, I mean, I think that... Um, you know, there's some academics like uh, Jonathan Brown whose whose books end up being re- affordable. Some of them are through academic presses. Some of them are through more popular presses. But so. his Bukhari book is not out yet. His Bukhari his book? His actual thesis, which I read it in the library of Harvard Seminary when I worked there. Yeah. It was amazing. I, I loved it. I think it's published through Brill. So that's yeah, one of those. Yeah, that's going to be like one of those. Uh, yeah, one of those. You're only going to get it in yeah. the library. I mean, I love the Brill publications, right? Of course. Yeah. Now, before we do the rest of the intros. So, man, you're doing Imam al Jassas? Or you said al Kharaqi? Tell us, tell us exactly what you're doing. I am doing the, um, the, history, the early history of the Hanafi school um, with a focus on its social and legal dimensions from the death of Imam Muhammad al Shaybani, who people know as one of the foremost students of Abu Hanifa, from his death up until the time of al Kharaqi and al Jassas. Um, so that's a that's a stretch. Uh, Imam Ima Muhammad dies 189 Hijri. Uh, Al Karhi dies around I think 340. So that's a stretch of about you know uh, over 100 100 uh, years, um, mostly covering the third century Hijri. So that's my so my you're main focus. covering about 100 years. Alaikum <coughs> <coughs> salam. I've never seen you in a tie, Alex. MashaAllah. <laughs> He's got it. Coming in here with a tie and sunglasses. Oh, would you just come from court or something? Yeah. Akbar, man. You're looking great. Uh, pull up a seat right here. Yeah, you should wear your shoes. There's uh, water leaking everywhere here. Yeah, you'll, you'll share a mic with Wasim. <clears throat> some of the humidity or something gets into these wires and, and messes up uh, all the wires. So all my, all, all my work filling in for uh, Verizon. Uh, has failed today. <laughs> so I set up basically all the mics, but the humidity uh, here, the moisture seems to mess it up. So you'll share that one, Jola. And these two are basically uh, not working. We have them. We have to shut it off. For here's a, He's doing an HVAC pitch for us. Here. <laughs> 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 
That's, that one's brought to you by Abu Bilal's HVAC. <laughs> okay, so back to, we're, we're talking here about uh, Sheikh Salman Yunus's study, and you're covering so 100 years of Hanafi fiqh, right? Yes. In that 100 years, why is it all of a sudden, all these writers in Iraq, all of a sudden there's like no literature? So what happened? Uh, I guess people just didn't care to preserve it. I mean, you preserve things that I guess you... Um, that you value, that you see some merit in preserving things that can be transmitted, um, and that seems to happen with al Tahawi mm-hmm. in Egypt. You know, his his books, his students are immediately spreading them to Iraq, to uh, uh, the per- Persian lands, and so on and so forth, very quickly. Uh, but that's not happening for other authors. I mean, the main reason why I I I, um, I, I focus on this period is that when you look at most traditional studies, traditional studies, we start at Quduri. Mm-hmm. You know? Quduri is a uh, 5th century scholar. You started him, and then you, know, you, you, you progress down the line, you, you know, end up at like the Hashiyah of Ibn Abdin, who becomes like the final word for, for most people. But uh, a, lot of, a lot of people don't know. Like we talk about this Rasul al-Mufti tradition. You know, in what in is it? Rasul al-Mufti, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the science of ifta. In, 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 the Hanafi, uh, tr- in, in the Hanafi school. And for the most part, in that tradition, we stick to Ibn Abdin. He has this, this poem that he authored um, on the principles of, of Ifta. And, you know, Ibn Abdin said it, so everyone's gonna, mm-hmm. gonna, gonna stick to it. But the madhab is, is you know, uh, as, as one of my teachers told me, uh, who's actually, he was, he, he was a, he was a Diobandi scholar. Uh, he's like, we've erected so many things in, in, from the time of Abu Hanifa, there have been so many structures erected mm. that all we can see is the one that's immediately before us, mm. you know, and we don't see anything before that. Like, we don't, we don't understand how Abu Hanifa engaged in fiqh. We don't understand how the students engaged in fiqh. Even when it comes to At-Tahawi, we study At-Tahawi, we study Sharma'ani Al-Athar, but does it, does it affect how we as scholars are engaging in fiqh? Or, is it, or just, does it just become... He's defending the Hanafi school, so it's, it's all good. Mm. Otherwise, um, you know, that's, his own, that's all he's worth. And so for me, the early period was sort of just filling in that gap um, that the, I guess we don't really uh, uh, tackle in, in, in traditional studies. And, and is this uh, personal research, or, uh, or are you with a program? I mean, I'm in the... Uh, you mean this is my PhD? So I. Oh, I, so yeah. we are. Yeah, this is this is my yeah. So I'm in the or- Oriental Institute, mm-hmm. um, and we've actually had a lot of we ha- we have three people we have three individuals in Oxford currently who focus on the Hanafi school. So there's me who's focusing on uh, this this stretch of time. Then there's Mufti uh, Kemaluddin, uh, um, who is a uh, he's a Mufti, you know. Um, and an, a Naqshbandi Sheikh, um, uh, and he's doing his PhD oh on. He's Indian. He's no, he's he's actually from America. Oh, Kamaluddin he, Ahmed. Yeah, yeah, Kamaluddin Ahmed. Uh, he's a colleague of Sheikh Hussein Abdul Sattar. Oh, okay. And they were both they they were both in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's in the UK now. He's doing his dissertation on Al-Tahawi. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we had Sheikh Suhail Hanif, who just finished his dissertation. I shared his. Uh, PhD on Twitter recently and he focuses on the period of Imam al-Marghinani mm. uh, and slightly earlier so 
you know, uh, we have a good, um, you know, there's a running joke in the uh, in some sections of the academy now that our that our supervisor, we we actually all have one supervisor uh, that he's like the sheikh of the Hanafis in, oh, really? in the academy. But who's that supervisor? Uh, his name is Christopher Melcher. Okay. He's 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 firmly in the in the Orientalist camp, but he's really good because he just lets the student get on with his work. Is he old? Yeah, yeah. He, he, he did his de- own degree. He was with George Maktesi at uh, UPenn. And George Maktesi is a really influential um, s- s- scholar in Islamic studies. You might not know him because he's speaking to like 20 people yeah. <laughs> in, the, <laughs> in the academy. So uh, let, let me give Alex an update. So when you, before you came in, what we started discussing is uh, Sheikh Salman. Let's just actually do the intros first. So we got Bilal here. Bilal who basically uh, works for HVAC. Right, he's got bigger plans, obviously, but he works for HVAC. As soon as we said moisture, he jumped. <laughs> HVAC, which stands for heating, vacuuming. What is it? Heating, ventilation. Heating, vacuuming, ventilation, air conditioning. Okay, so that's why he wants to solve our moisture problem here, so our mics could work. That's fine. Uh, Hamza Q, law school, and he's uh, clerking now for a federal judge. Law Akbar. Judge Ship. Yeah. Third Circuit, right? So, uh, what kind of cases? All kinds of cases. Federal cases. Federal cases mainly, like crimes. Everything. 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 Anything interesting? I haven't started yet. I'm starting in two weeks. All right, critical. All right, good. So that's that's Hamza Q, and I actually want Hamza to be a regular to come in with uh, some news or political item. Wouldn't that be great? I really want him to be like a segment. I want a segment. Right, Q News. That's what we're gonna call. It. All right, Hamza Q. Hamza Qureshi. I keep saying Hamza Q as if everyone knows it's Hamza Qureshi, but we just call him Hamza Q. So we want Q News segment, right? A little with a little jingle. I want a jingle for Q News, and he come in and give us something on the political situation because we gotta, you know, you know, we gotta know what's going on. All right. Then we got Uthman. What's happening, Uthman? What's what 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 are you up to? Oh, you're still in the BA? Yeah. I thought you were a lot older than that. Uh, I okay. am a lot older. I'm still in my BA. Okay. Yeah. So they kept you back a couple yeah, grades? Yeah, yeah. Right. I kept myself back. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> so you couldn't uh, finagle your, your way in the way Bilal did. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So w- what we started was with uh, Shiliwala about being, print- being in Princeton for so long. BA, <laughs> MA, <laughs> PhD. And then we, I said, like, you hang out with uh, Michael Cook and Patricia Crone. Crona? She's oh, dead. so she rebranded her name because it used to be Patricia Crone. Now it's Patricia Crona. It was. Oh, she died, too. Yeah, yeah. Oh, see, that I didn't know that. See, the thing is, you never know. I'm telling you, these people are so off the radar. They, they <laughs> die and you never know. You have a clue. We didn't see a Janaz or nothing, right? So she's, she's gone. Now, Michael Cook. Uh, so I asked him, you hang out with this guy? And he said, oh, I, don't, I wouldn't say hanging out. But and then I went into... <laughs> The ridiculousness of his book. The first, yeah. Yeah, the, the first the book. One, yeah. yeah. So he tried to attribute basically the whole religion. Uh, he basically was trying to get a history from non-Islamic sources. And he, of course, he had to take it back uh, because of how embarrassing it was. But mainly the main thing that I asked him about was how do they feel knowing that nobody cares? Because there's, you know, there's, there's something about knowing something, mm-hmm. but there's also something called knowing your place, right? Mm-hmm. And you could know a lot but then you get the shock of your life when you discover your place, right? So that's how we started talking. That's what we, and Hamza Kiyosi brought in the, the, the comment that 
Isn't that the case with all? I would say probably like 90% of academics, yeah. right? I think engineering professors do something for the world because you're producing people. They're going to pass your test. They can get a job, mm -hmm. right? Uh, biology, maybe, right? You know, the sciences, the hard sciences. And I actually do think that humanities professors do enrich people's lives. But when they do put, in the sense that like nice discussions, nice readings that you never read before. Mm -hmm. But when you're making such bold claims right you want some effect right when you realize it's falling on deaf ears imagine we recorded podcasts and never released them right or release them you get one person if we had like a viewership of like three people after the first season like we cancel it we'd be embarrassed we said oh, it never happens right mm -hmm. but they keep going right so actually i i have a i have an answer to that because i think that so when we talk, we tend to talk about academics. We talk mostly about their academic research, which comes in academic journals or in these obscure academic presses, which tend to be read only by you know maybe the three people in their field, and usually those people are extremely critical because they want to build their authority off the other. Mm -hmm. But usually these are means by which they enter into the guild of academics. So it's like you know me getting my dissertation, me publishing a book. These are all steps on a path for me to eventually get tenure. Once I get tenure, then I can say whatever I want. Supposedly, I mean, you know, I'm, I mean, we're, we're seeing that some universities are walking back tenure. But the idea is I should be able to th be a free thinker in society, publish whatever I want, teach whatever I want. Teaching, I think, is one of the main components by which most academics have their influence on society at large. And because it's such because uh, academic research is so spread far apart and so thinly that it's usually a handful of people, maybe three people, who are working on any of a number of questions. So if I want to teach at a, a university course and my, my frame of knowledge is you know, Western academia. If I want to talk about the Sierra, there are certain debates I have to talk about. If I want to talk about early Islam, there are certain debates and books that I'm referencing. If I'm talking about fiqh and so on and so forth. Each one of these aspects that might go into my, you know, history of Islam course, that's all coming from those people. Similarly, if somebody wants to write, you know, their, you know, dumb person's guide to Islam, they're usually not going to go to what Muslims say. I mean, hopefully they are, but usually it's the case that they'll go to Western academics. And again, like, depending on which academic they ask, that's where the power comes in. That's when their narrative about what Islam is, what's worth studying about Islam. You know, who gets to get fired? You know, the whole question of, you know, what is Islam? Those things all come into play in those areas. And then obviously when policymakers want to get some input on what a certain region of the world is like and so on and so forth. They so call Bernard Lewis. They call Bernard, yeah, Bernard Lewis. And I mean, the, like the greatest expose of this um, is obviously Edward Said's Orientalism, where he shows that like there are these connections, that there is, you know, there is a grand narrative at play that Orientalists are making that are having these widespread effects on society. Um, while Halak just came out with his restatement of Orientalism, which I think is going to be an even bigger of a game change if people take it seriously, because that's the other issue with academics is you can have the best ideas and some of the most serious ideas, but it really is, um, it, you know, it really is a matter of whether people take it seriously, whether they engage you terribly, and so on and so forth. So that's where a lot of these things happen. To make it very clear, one, I mean, one concrete example of this in a nutshell is the study Quran. 
Because, I mean, I think a lot of us will think about the study Quran from the perspective of the Muslim community. is like, is this a text that, you know, your average Muslim should be reading? Should they be taking their deen from it? And so on and so forth. But I think what the study Quran is more positioned to do and why, you know, Sayyid Hussein Nasser and that team was really keen on completing this project um, is because they wanted to have this as being the reference work for, for Western academia including, you know, Christian theological seminaries, all things like that. Because there's actually, I mean, going over, you know, um, exoticize this, but there is a battle going on where you have, you know, the um, people within, like, um, I think I mentioned this before, within Quranic studies, some people are like, the way you understand the Quran is through the tafsir tradition. That's the study Quran approach. But there's another approach that says, well, actually, the way you understand the Quran is not through tafsir. It's through these, you know, through looking at non-Muslim sources. It's through looking at, you know, Christianity and so on and so forth. And they're bringing another perspective in. Well, there's, um, they're actually in the process of publishing that. Yeah. Right. And it's, um, they're really critical of study Quran for basically being accepting of what Muslims said. Mm-hmm. And they're taking a completely... Um, what would you call their perspective? I mean, the Muslim perspective was almost like an anthropological perspective. Like, this is what Muslims say about their book, yeah. right? And this approach, who's leading it? Do you know who, who she um, is? I think she's out of Northeastern or something, or Northwestern. Oh, I, I mean, one person I know who's, you know, big in this field is um, Gabriel Saeed Reynolds, who's out of Notre Dame. But I don't know about who's, mm. who's heading. That's our friend's uh, mentor. Who? Our friend from New Jersey. Oh, <laughs> So, yeah, so I'm not entirely sure about the details of that project. He yeah. even came out with a translation of the Quran, I think, which was, again, like a comparison between, you know, Muslim and Christian, yeah. you know, these sorts of things. Um, so these sorts of questions. Now, the where the rubber meets the road is when, let's say, you know, somebody who's at like, I don't know, Bob Jones University, yeah. they have to teach a course on, you know, interfaith and they have three weeks to teach about Islam. Yeah. You know, capture Islam in three weeks. Yeah. Who are they going to teach? What what source? Like when they're teaching, let's say, future, you know, Christian thought leaders, you know, if you want to know anything about the Quran, you go with this text. What text do they point? That's where I think the most, you know, the, that's where the most currency is to, be ha- is to be found in academia. And that's where, you know, you do need, um, like, that's where you do need, like, Muslim professors, where you do need people who understand the tradition, who at the very least understand what the Muslim community is about and the way they want, to pers- they want their religion to be understood um, as having a significant voice. There's no way it's going to be the only voice, um, but again... It's, it's got to like, be there. It's got to be there and it's got to be... I mean, it is a matter of institutionalization. That's where the politics of it comes in. Yeah, you're right. So, so it's that. It's being, it's being put on the syllabus, syllabi. Yeah. across uh, the nation for a couple decades at least before mm-hmm. it gets something else comes. And it's also what Alex points to of the policy makers immediately going to like for a while, I guess Bernard Lewis was fashionable after 9-11. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think that's changed now, but he was it was really fashionable. He's also moved on. He's moved on to what? Another uh, stage of existence. Oh, he passed away, too? He passed away recently, yeah. They, they need this uh, thing to ac- keep up with these <laughs> academics. I mean, how am I supposed to know these people are dying? Like, when a Muslim dies, you, we know, right? I mean, mm-hmm. because of the communal nature. Sure. But these people, like, uh, I guess if you're not into the AAR, you're not going to know, <laughs> right? Huh? <laughs> well, that's what we need for Q News for, right? Yeah. <laughs> all the dead yeah. <laughs> all right, so Sheikh Salman, tell us about life 
in Oxford and uh, Banbury. Well, we can't we can't go from that that <laughs> <laughs> that that in, very very intriguing. Uh, um, All right, comments on that. Whatever you want. No, I, I I I do I do concur with uh, with Wasim, um, and some academics are actually you know while halak stuff it's being translated into Arabic. Yeah. You know, it's being translated into Arabic. Turkish. There are Turkish. There are people uh, responding to it to to his like impossible state that he yeah. the, the the book that he wrote. Uh, Jonathan Brown, of course, his influence has gone well beyond the um, uh, the confines of the academy. Uh, I think Behnam Sadri is going to be another another individual uh, who's going to who's going to stand out in this regard. And um, so, yeah, when you when you when you look at it from the perspective of uh, what, what, what Wasim was mentioning, the grand narrative, you know, policy making. Uh, uh, plus, uh, what future generations are going to be relying upon in terms of how they approach Islam, how they teach Islam in universities, and so on and so forth? Um, yeah, academics do have. Uh, uh, you know, I don't think we should just dismiss them as people who don't have uh, a lot of influence. They, they they do carry some influence, and to some degree, you know, anyone who lives in a sort of a bubble is going to. You know, I get like two thousand Twitter followers, and I think I'm the you know, like <laughs> <laughs> I've made it in life, or something like that. Uh, so you know, that's just a natural reaction people have that they don't they don't recognize, perhaps their own insignificance sometimes. Um, and we can't, as human beings, we can't. You know, it's it's very difficult to escape that. Uh, but life in Oxford is good. Life in Oxford is is is, is super is quiet. Nice. No, it's not super quiet. It's but we have we have the new Oxford Center for Islamic Studies. Um, that was built. I think it was like a sixty million dollar project. You get um, guests coming in all the time. Yeah, all the time, all the time. You like get guests every, coming in. All everyone the time. who passes through England is that has anything to say is going to pass through Oxford yeah. at some point, yeah. right? And we get like you know, like, you know, b- big scholars like uh, ex Mufti of Bosnia to Sheikh Jibril Haddad <laughs> with his translation of the Tafsir Baydawi. And um, when they come in, who is welcoming them? It's, u- it's, it's usually like it's usually the the president of the, uh, the center. Oh, so official is, official yeah. visits. Yeah, these are official so these yeah, are official, official talks. Okay. Yeah, and you know they have they have scholarships set up now for people in in, in the Muslim world mm. um, uh, to come to Oxford. They have they have a, a dormitory where where students can can live, and it's a really beautiful uh, setup. You know, they put a lot of money in it. Mm. They got like good calligraphers, good you know craftsmen. What what uh, calligraphy did they put? They put, ev- put everything. Like it's, a, it's, a, it's a yeah. It's a it's a it's a proper religious place. They have a they have a masjid there. They have a designated imam. Are you, this is all part of the university. Uh, they've used the name of the university, but it's oh, like the okay. official. It's not it's not it's not like a department in the university, hmm. but it's. Um, That's why I was wondering yeah. how are they going to put Quran in the mm-hmm. university? Yeah. Is, is, uh, is that T J Winters' uh, spot? Is he no, T no T J Winters is in Cambridge. Okay. TJ Winter is just uh, the mosque that they built in Cambridge is also like a state of the art, you know, super masjid. green friendly masjid. Yeah, mm. uh, and they put in a lot of money in that we'll too. See. Princeton, get on yeah. it. Yeah. Well, I mean, so one question I had about this is, um, like, is this um, in terms of its affiliation with the university? Is it the case that it's just like a set, like it's using the name of the university? There's obviously something there. Are there are people there teaching courses? Yeah, a lot of people like Sheikh Afifi. Mm-hmm. Is primarily based out, uh, out of the Oxford Center of Islamic Studies, 
um, but he's uh, cross-appointed with the Oriental Institute as well. So he'll supervise students in the university and stuff. If you if you go to um, the the library website and you put in a book, all the books that are in the Oxford Center for Islamic Studies are wow. linked to the university as well. So students can go in, uh, use the library, and so on and so forth. So it's still it's an independent entity, but it's still connected to the university in some and way. And it it has classes, obviously, right? Yeah, they, they more uh, usually they not classes per se, but uh, they deal mostly in like uh, seminars or or okay. General so the, so they don't. So this is not a department in the sense that it has courses that are recognized by the university. No, they don't have courses. They have what they have is they have fellows, so people who are researching. Yeah. You know, so they f- they, they they fund a number of uh, fellowships, oh. um, which is a good thing because in one way it's a safe environment for Muslims to do Muslim work mm. mm-hmm. uh, and get paid for it uh, as well um, and so uh, and then they have these invited guests and stuff and so you're registered with that no I'm, I'm actually in the Oriental Institute right now as, because I'm a student and who's paying for this Oxford uh, um, I think it's what's it called what's the exact Oxford Center for Islamic Studies Okay. Oxford Osis. Yeah, Osis, basically. Okay. So uh, I, mean, I think some. <laughs> I think. <laughs> okay. I think it was some rich. I think it was from maybe the Gulf or one of these rich people okay. who funded it. <laughs> but uh, Prince Charles is he he he's, he has an involvement too. I think he like designed the garden, and he's like. Overse- so so they, he paid for this. Some rich guy paid for it. He's paying for it every year. Like, there's no. What's the? How does the business model work? I wish I was close enough to, to know <laughs> yeah. the people in that organization yeah. to know, to but know there's the no I mean endowment huh? yeah it's an endowment it's definitely an endowment it must it pays just for be itself. pays yeah. for itself okay. so it's a massive endowment that the 5% that they take out every year covers the budget mm-hmm. I just like I just want to know how these things yeah. work yeah. no that'd be great if we had something like that in America um, because like so what I'm thinking at Princeton University we have like the Witherspoon Institute which is you know quite well known for putting out more conservative thought and supporting conservative thought bringing conservative speakers um robbie george um is you know perhaps the most famous person affiliated with we that. should have him here mccormick prof uh-huh. yeah, so we, we need to get him here by the way i don't know if he'd come huh we might have to I go think, to him but I, no i think he's actually um really uh bold and and he plays it loose like in the sense that he's not so uptight because of his look, look at what he says that's yeah. far more uh gonna pick a fight than anything that would happen here <laughs> i think if i if, if i have coffee with him and we talk scalia for a while oh that's it yeah, yeah, that's come, gonna yeah. come for that's, sure now speaking of scalia i don't want to jump off of osis real sure, quick sure. all right the, o- the ocis yeah <laughs> <laughs> what's the nickname osis. It's osis they actually call it that yeah. oh okay so i wasn't the first person to come up with it all right too bad i thought i was going to be the first person to come up with it now you heard uh, now alex is uh everyone knows he's a lawyer he reads up on Scalia. Did you know that there's a Scalia play coming out? I've seen it. Oh, you've seen it already? Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. See, <laughs> when did it come out? Um, it, it came out uh, a few months ago, early in the spring. And Pessimism, Mike. It was on PBS. They, they did a broadcast at one time. They actually this. broadcasted it. Yeah. Okay, so... It's, on, it's in New York now, but it started in D.C. So the idea is that, and Hamza's going to like this, Scalia is obviously a conservative, right? And he's a textual originalist, right? That he goes by, uh, you know, what this word, what the words in the text mean, defines the law, not the int- intent of the lawmakers, 
the intent of the lawmakers at the time. At that time. But without looking at legislative history. Okay. Stuff that's extra textual. Okay. Now, one thing Scalia used to do was he used to hire liberal interns. Law clerks, yeah. Liberal cl- have, clerks. He used to call them the counter clerks. So yeah. It would be like one out of his four clerks would be like very liberal. So that he could spar with them and argue with them. And, and they go back and forth and it brings out. Yeah. Yeah. Could you imagine if Safina Saad had a liberal intern? <laughs> It'd be a Janaza as well. <laughs> One of us is going to be gone, right? By the end of the first day of work. So, you, so tell us about the play. Uh, that's it's a it's a fictionalized account of uh, one year in the court where he hired. Uh, like, is it a musical? No, no, no. It's just a play. Okay. Yeah, I, and, I wouldn't watch it if it was a musical. Not not even on fic reasons, just because yeah. musicals are terrible. Yeah, and <laughs> and is it good? Like, as a, um, is the dialogue good? The dialogue is okay. The acting, the acting was good. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, they have to. So you're trying to you're trying to convey like these complex academic ideas to a uh, to to like a regular audience, and so you have to dump. So you have to do a lot of exposition so that people know what you're talking about. So people are saying things to each other that they would never say in real life. Yeah. Like you're a textualist. That means that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but you need to do that for for that type of audience for the play. Um, but overall, yeah. it, was, it was entertaining. Um, so okay, so now we're, we're going to go to your segment because I always want to have a segment besides Q News. I wanted uh, we're have Alex's segment. Uh, yeah, the 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 A. Uh, what do you want to call it? Let's go to I News. I News. Yes. Okay. Uh, so your segment is going to be giving us the Supreme Court update because we talked about Kavanaugh, mm-hmm. talked about the Supreme Court. You're going to give our listeners the Supreme Court update on what should we expect from these people? Who are they? Right. What's the background of this new guy? We didn't even cover Gorsuch, so you might as well give us a blur about that. Then we're going to turn to Sedman. You're going to tell us how they, what's the Supreme Court situation in England? Do they even have that? Like, what they do, do they have? They had an interesting ruling just like two weeks ago or, yeah. or last last week. Um, some woman's been trying to get divorced for like 40 years. And uh, they, this she, has to do with the gap? She's been trying to get a divorce for several years. It has to do with the gap. I don't even know what that is. The Jewish uh, no, no, no. It's not a get. Okay. No, no. They're they're regular British, um, you know, whatever they are, Anglicans. Uh. Um, her husband doesn't agree to the divorce, so you have to have four cause divorce in England. There's a lot of states in, in America have a no fault divorce, where as long as you can just show up in court and go, I don't want to be married anymore, and you're out. Yeah. Um, you can't do that in England. In England, you have to show cause. And why are the feminists like so late in the game on this? I don't know. They're upset about it, obviously. And I mean, with Seymour, aren't they like, late on the game on this? I mean, how could this be on the books? The court basically argued that the, all, the, all the courts all the way up to, this, to the Supreme Court said that she just didn't present uh, a good rationale for wanting to get divorced. So you have to stay married. Do you, not, do you need a rationale to want to get married? I mean, I think that's assumed probably. <laughs> yeah, that, that you family. want to. That you want yeah. to. So, but when only one party wants to divorce and the other party doesn't, you have to show good cause. Which I mean, the thing is, right? So, (laughs) so England is an Anglican country traditionally, which is basically Catholicism plus the priest can get married, right? And people can get divorced, but they still have that negative view of divorce that's always been traditional in in the Catholic and Orthodox type uh, versions of Christianity, where divorce is just out of the question unless it's something ridiculous. Like, even as a Catholic, you can apply to the Vatican for an annulment of your marriage, but you have to show amazing cause. Like, we've never consummated the marriage in 20 years or something. How is that going to be proven? Uh, testimony that's believable, a lot. It's or, very complex. It's hard to do. Of unless course, you're like, an influential or, person, and then you can just get it. 
or domestic abuse, for example. I don't think that qualifies. No? Not for an annulment. That doesn't qualify? No. Actually, there's a, there's a, you know, I, 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 I tweeted about this maybe three days ago. There's this interesting case now that the high court in, in England decided, which was that does the state have uh, jurisdiction over uh, a nikah that's not registered with the state officially? Mm. You know, you just do go to a nikah at a masjid, yeah. you know, and then uh, the big issue was that in the case of divorce, a woman has no recourse to claiming any of her rights uh, because the, the only, the only uh, entity that can enforce uh, rights is the state. You know, unless it's like a community setting where, mm-hmm. you know, the wife's brother is going around beating up the husband and telling him that you have to pay, <laughs> up, you have to pay up or something, like that, you know, or there's some community pressure. But absent that, it's only the state that can be like, no, you have to give, you know, uh, um, uh, child support for this much time or nafaka for this much time or while she's in her that period or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't exist. Um, and so now what happened was a woman who was um, just in a nikah marriage. She went to the high court, she asked for a divorce, and previously UK courts would say that no, this is a private ceremony. Uh, it's considered what th- they would call it. Um, uh, it's uh, it, it has no it, it has no uh, uh, legal way. legal legal existence. Hmm. So because it has no legal existence, the court can't rule on it. You know, it doesn't exist hmm. to begin with. Now they say that no. Uh, they treat it almost like in Islamic law, what we call like something that's fasid. It's yeah. not it's in the Hanafi school, you know, it's like a middle ground. Incorrect ground. marriage. Yeah, it's not battle, but Incorrectly it's Incorrectly done. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so the state has jurisdiction over it, so the state can actually nullify it and deem it void. Uh, and so now Or they can uphold it. Yeah, or they can, they can uphold it if there's, if there's um, depending on cause and whatnot. But uh, it's a big deal because this has been a big question. And so some, some of the ulama in, in the UK, for example, like Sheikh Akram Nadwi, yeah. Sheikh Akram's position was that when a state enforces, he, Sheikh Akram says there's a difference between talaq and, and, and an annulment. A talaq is a divorce, mm-hmm. right? An annulment is something that uh, a court or a state, when they force a couple to separate, that's, that's, an, that's a fasq, you know, I see. In, 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 in Islamic law. And so the big issue that was happening was that this undermines the, the right of divorce is a husband's right, right in, in, in Islam, and so courts cannot issue divorces, uh, and it cannot be deemed Islamically valid because if the husband is Didn't not approving, it. I see. husband is not approving it. <coughs> but a fasq is not dependent on the permission of the husband. Mm-hmm. You know, someone who who you know is discovered that you know he has like, you know, so sorry for the uh, blatant examples, but he he he. Um, He's erectile dysfunction. He can't consummate the marriage with his wife. Even according to Islamic texts, it doesn't matter what, what the husband says that, oh, no, I want to stay married. The Qadi will give him a specific amount of time and say that if you cannot consummate the marriage, then we will annul the marriage. And a non-Muslim can annul the marriage? And so the big issue then becomes that do non, do, do, does a state, a non-Muslim state, have jurisdiction over Muslims in this, in, in this area? Now, the, the, the counter-argument is you accept the jurisdiction for everything else. You know, you go for them when you have contractual disputes. You go for them for uh, 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 setting up businesses. When you have a fight with your uncle and want, you know, you, you, and sue him and stuff like that. So why is it that only when it comes to marriage you deny their their quote unquote wilaya? Muslim has uh, something. So to say. it's it's an interesting debate that's happening in the UK right now over that. 
this is fascinating because I'm studying a case from about a hundred and ten years ago in India, where this is the case wasn't a marriage but it was a wakf, and basically an endowment, and basically the um, part of the British government, somebody acting on behalf of a civil court, stepped in and claimed that the person who contracted the wakf was not um, was not fit to do so. So they invoked the doctrine of Hajar in Islamic law. So basically, the question is, um, can the can the British court system, you know, say that a Muslim is not able to establish a wakf? Do they have this power? And Ahmed Reza Khan Barelvi, well, there's there are two there are two fatwas. One was um, written by somebody local to that region, a mufti there, um, by the name of Mufti Abdullah, and he basically had argued that um, a British a British judge is the same thing as a qadi. The qadi has the right to um, invoke this doctrine of hajar and prevent people from enacting on certain transactions. So it's completely fine. Ahmed Reza Khan um, writes this whole treatise where he actually differentiates between what he calls orfi um, wilaya, the authority that a political power has just by its virtue of being a political power, versus shari wilaya which is the authority that actually comes to somebody through the Sharia, literally from Allah and from the Prophet So his argument was basically that on certain issues, like for example, the dissolution of a marriage or of claiming someone, of claiming somebody unfit to transact over their property. And he, lives, he gives a number of other examples. He says, this is not the case for, um, this is a case of Shari wilaya and only a Muslim appointed by you know, a Muslim ruler or a Muslim appointed as a judge by, with the consent of the Muslim community has this type of authority. And therefore, that, you know, whatever the British court does, that's only from this other realm, this purely political type of authority. So they can say whatever they want about this authority, about this property. But according to Allah, it's still a waqf. And according to the Muslim community, it should, it should still be you know, considered that way. And, and I would say the difference between having a Muslim judge and otherwise, or Muslims going to uh, secular courts, is that <clears throat> in this case, you have someone overriding a Muslim man, right? Mm-hmm. That's a big difference than both of us saying, okay, we don't have power to, um, you know, uh, have our, a decision made for this amount of money. Right. Well, the only person who does have the power will sort of have no choice. So that's, I would think, yeah, is yeah, the main difference. Yeah. I yeah. mean, from the, from the just from the, the secular law pr- perspective, they're asking when you go to a secular court with a religious, whatever the religious thing is, exactly what Wasim was saying, right? You're asking them to apply a completely def- different law. So, like, you sue your uncle, right? But you're not suing your uncle for interest on back payments. Mm. I mean, you might. And then you're relying on the secular court to award you that interest, but it's still bottom, right? Yeah. Like it doesn't have any legal effect Islamically. Mm-hmm. You're stealing money. You don't have a right to interest payments. Yeah. So even though the secular authority is granting it to you and you've uh, availed yourself of that to do something sinful, it doesn't mean that it has any actual legal effect Islamically. Yeah. The, 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 the question is, though, because that w- it, what the secular court is, 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 is enacting or ruling is something that the Sharia recognizes as a valid means of fi- uh, terminating a marriage, right? Which is annulment is a valid means of terminating a marriage. The only issue is 
does this particular entity have the authority to do that? Well, and there, there are different ways people, people frame this. So one way they frame it is social contract. By, by, by virtue of entering into the country and entering into a social contract, if the state chooses to, ina- it, it chooses to uh, uh, you know, annul a marriage, which in itself is mubah, you know, it's, it's, it's different to something like inheritance law. You know, if, they, if they force you to say you have to divide in a way that's not mandated by the sharia, you know, uh, uh, that's different to something like a, a fasq. Well, it's see, it would are seem they applying the same criteria that a Muslim would? Though? Yeah, that the, the, that's where the thing comes in. Uh, question comes into play because the Hanafis have a very restrictive definition of of what you can uh, the reasons for an annulment. The because Malikis have a much broader uh, uh, understanding uh, of that. You know, Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayah has this whole article, and actually what the Hanafis. It? What is it? Uh, well, I'm not. I don't want to misrepresent the Maliki school, so I won't go into details. But I'll just point to Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayez. He has this, he has an answer, and his answer was actually sent to him. The question was actually sent to him by Mufti Taki Uthmani's Darul Ifta in Karachi, because they found the Hanafi view to be too actually too restrictive. Because mm-hmm. all these women were coming to them, and they're like, you know, my wife is like beating the hell out of me, <laughs> and uh, you know, he's not giving me a divorce. Like he refuses. Oh, the to husbands. Me a divorce. Uh, yeah. Are, do and a lot so of those uh, courts those. Uh, Sharia marriage courts that exist in the UK, do they apply the, the Maliki view? It, I mean, the, that's the thing. because They actually do. I got that from... from some of them do. Some of them don't. Like, there have been recordings that have been leaked, unfortunately, where the... G- <laughs> a leak. Where, you know... Uh, Sorry, not pa- the... Panorama, this show on BBC, you know, they go undercover mm. with the cameras. And so, you know, the wife is, like, complaining that my husband's, like, beating me with a bat or something. And... The, the some of the uh, scholars in the in the Sharia council are like you know you have to patience, just put up with yeah. him. No, I it's meant haram uh, for you to call the authorities uh-huh. against your husband and, and just things like that. And of I course, that's the, not the everyone. Queen's marriage uh, uh, Sharia council for marriages in Queens, in New York. In New York, they use the Maliki opinion on on the yeah. subject. Somebody I, told I, me in yeah. England that they. I think more. I think more and more people are 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 moving to that because what they've realized is that. Like again, in this particular situation, if the husband is, if no, uh, unless you like, like I said, you, the, the the wife's brothers go and coerce him to <laughs> issue a divorce <laughs> or something. Well, here's the thing: like some the of them. Jewish situation. Yeah. <laughs> With the in terms of the fesh, uh, if a court does it, but at the same time the imam does it, right? Then we shouldn't really have a problem, in yeah, the sense that yeah. if there is a valid reason. Right, He's saying, look, I'm going to court, but I'm also going to go to the masjid. In the same way we marry, we go to the civil court, get the paperwork from them, then we also go to the masjid, right? So you do both to marry, and you do both on the way out too. Now you were you you the, the get was a problem, man. So why don't just, you tell her? Just tell to, I will just to continue on what you just said, yeah. and I'll, I'll give you a constitutional term. The problem then with these with the civil courts issuing divorces is not whether they do it or not, it's yeah. an as-applied issue. So in some cases, perfectly fine. In some cases, there may be a challenge mm-hmm. in the way that it's been applied. Like, I want a divorce because I just don't like this guy anymore. You know, he's boring. He watches too much football. <laughs> that's why, that's another reason. If you look at, if you look at the people the government is consult, consulting on these issues, yeah. they're all like, none of them are like, like fuqaha or in muftis and so stuff like that. It's like peop- academics, So activists. why don't they it's consult? Nice, nice, nice Nice way to bring it back. <laughs> 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 it's fine. I'll concede like that they have a 1% relevance. That's fine. Wa'al halaq is stuff. Okay. That's like great. I love his stuff. 
I mean, he he I is just Christian. Uh, he's Christian. He's Palestinian Christian. He came over as with nothing. I don't think. I don't think that he had anything. Twenty people that read him. Yeah, I don't think that he had anything. To do with academia when he came, I don't think he came for that. He was like a, one of those hardworking guys, and all of a sudden, somehow it, it happened. Uh, but he's a Christian Palestinian. Um, but his stuff is great. And uh, but but it just it still goes to the same point that it's the identity and it's the content. Like you pointed out, three people, right? All three of these people, the actual Muslim people, care about what they have to say because it's. Reflects what they something for at least the sources of their tradition, right? And on the other side, the relevant guy on the other side was Bernard Lewis, because he reflects what people like Cheney wanted to hear, right? So it 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 has to do. It has a lot to do with uh, who you are, and if human beings in the earth, right here on the grounds where the rubber hits the road, care about what you have to say, right? Except you and what you have to say. So that's where the point is, and the point still stands of those types who are going way against the grain, right, with these exotic theories, right, that try to upturn everything. Not in any discipline would that work. Like, they're irrelevant in every, forget just Islam, in every discipline, right? What an evangelical has to say about the LGBT is irrelevant, right? What, uh, uh, I mean, in medical fields, it's the same way. What a pediatrician has to say about surgery is irrelevant and they're both doctors per se right but there's such opposite fields of the spectrum of medicine right so it's it's uh it goes to the, uh, in all these fields but i was going to say why doesn't the why don't the british also include in their discussion the people who actually are listened to by their community like some of the imams in these marriage councils i think i think there's more of an i think there's more of an effort now people are are making making efforts to um to you know work with the government and advise the government uh but most of it is to do with like like anti-terrorism laws or you know things like that it's not like our discussions on these types of issues you know things that the courts are dealing with and stuff uh it would actually make sense these are we're just not Mm. we're just not there yet like we we we're way behind like maybe the, the, the jewish and christian communities and why they uh, the Jewish they? and Christian communities they've sort of welded their law into they got. I their mean, the, the Jewish communities just go through because in, in the UK you have an, you have an arbitration act. The reason why Sharia councils exist is be, and, and and you know Jews have their parallel court system as well uh, in that regard. It's not in it, it's an arbitration act. I think it was like uh, set down in like the nineteen maybe eighties or something, and so uh, two people can uh, reach an agreement independent of the courts. And it will be deemed binding, you know. Um, and so that's how the Sharia councils were set up. Uh, uh, but the thing is, one thing is Sharia councils. Obviously, they don't have. There's there's no oversight of them, you know. We don't know who's running them. Who are the scholars? What are their standards? Um, and uh, you know, anyone can go and set up a set up a, uh, a Sharia court. But what they come up with is. On a mutual agreement, which is an arbitration, which yeah, but it usually doesn't. Most of the time, it doesn't reach that point. Most of the time, it becomes a nasiha session. Yeah, just nasiha. Yeah, okay. and if you want to follow it, you can follow it, and uh, you know, some people and, and the vast majority of cases that come to Sharia councils, from what I know, are marriage and divorce, and inheritance. Those are the three main, three main uh, cases. But like I said, uh, again, some scholars are beginning to realize that. Yeah, maybe we need to look at the whole spectrum of Sunni views 
on you know what constitutes a valid divorce a valid fusk how can it be initiated uh, and that's why i mean even pakistan i mean the fact that people what <laughs> i in pakistan which is a islamic republic mm-hmm. and has uh, some semblance of islamic court system what um, do they use um strictly hanafi fiqh they, they, they were using strictly hanafi fiqh but now like i said mufti taqi uh, sent the official uh, istifta to sheikh abdullah bin bayah okay. asking him what is the maliki view on this issue okay Muslim. <laughs> you're gonna say something. <laughs> um, no, I think this was for the previous point you're making about. Um, I mean, basically the idea being that, like, in terms of these far out views, I think this is also reflective of. Um, it is reflective of some of the politics around what we consider debatable versus not debatable. Mm. Like, you know, I don't see this as being the case across the board, um, and we've definitely made a lot of progress. But in terms of just op- people being openly Muslim and also being an academic. Um, you know, maybe 10, 20 years ago, it was much harder, you know, and you'd be written off. Totally. And, um, but one of the things is that, like, even now, it seems like the way to be a Muslim in academia is to have this veneer of objectivity, mm-hmm. where what you're seeing in other fields is that veneer is being completely removed. Um, they're activists. Yeah, they're becoming activists. They're saying, no, I believe in X, Y, and Z, you know, philosophical propositions, and I'm going to carry them to whatever ends they go to in my scholarship. And where is that veneer? When is that veneer coming off in Islamic <coughs> studies departments? It's hard to say. I mean, the, an interesting contrast <coughs> that somebody brought up is like, you know, with this idea of like objectivity and religion is, oh, you shouldn't have a Muslim teaching Islamic studies, but are you going to have a communist teaching like a class on democracy? <laughs> you know, um, are you going to have, you know, somebody who's you know, um, you know, somebody from somebody who grew up in the Middle East teaching American studies or something like that. Yeah. You know, the idea being that, you know, there are certain ideas that we hold to be we take more seriously yeah. within academia. And that, you know, we don't like the idea of having that idea and its opposite operating in the same space. Uh-huh. And science is a very good example of that. Yeah. Where. Um, you know, the way science is taught is in a very, it's the way FIC used to be taught, and it is taught in some places. It's, you know, it's a program. You, yeah. you, you're trained to do something. Mm-hmm. It's not, the, co- the course isn't, let me teach you all of the major philosophical debates happening in science, yeah. and at the end of the day, we don't really know what science is at the yeah. end of the day, so, you know, do whatever you want. Yeah. Um, but this is sort of like how a lot of subjects are being taught in the humanities. Mm-hmm. Which isn't to say that it's good or bad, it's just to show that there's still a lot more dispute within the humanities. Um, but those sorts of things, I think, are, it shows where people's values lie. Mm-hmm. You know, what become the, you know, what become the things we just take as automatically, this is how it is, yeah. versus, you know, these are the things where, you know, if somebody <clears throat> were a more open Muslim and they're teaching like the, you know, Tahawiyah as being their intro to Islam, people will have a, a different type of reaction. Yeah, and I think it has to do with uh, just knowledge versus ignorance because we know exactly what certain ideas are, right? And we expect a proponent of that, whether I agree or disagree, he's researched it, he's brought his evidence, and he's the one who has the right to teach it. I mean, uh, a type of evolutionary, evolutionary biology course is not going to be taught by someone who believes in you know, the opposite, mm-hmm. right? Intelligent design. Okay, so... Uh, it's because we know what that stuff is and enough peers have discussed it and said, well, this is what it is. And if you say something opposed to that, you're contradicting all these evidences and you're a quack. Right. Mm-hmm. So but we haven't gotten to that point of literacy in Islam. Right. Where you say something in 
you know, 400 years ago in any Islamic college that's heretical is because the evidences are so well known. It's been repeated so many times that if you go against these evidences, you're obviously a quack, right? It's not going to fit in. It's not going to work. It's the same. It also goes to the our understanding of what these core concepts are. So well, like it begins with like, well, how are, we, how are we defining religion? You know, is it a tradition such that it's carried down as, you know, a lot of like a lot of Muslims will say that, oh, well, you know, the way we know this is true is that this was hanging down through uh, generations. But somebody else might come and say, well, no, it's not really a tradition. It's whatever Muslims do. Mm-hmm. So then it becomes a whole That's historical, the anthropological look. Yeah, anthropological look. Yeah. The problem is that like though that sort of challenge isn't admissible in let's say science mm-hmm. like or like you know the fact that somebody uh, disagrees with evolution and says like well actually I have an, I have an alternative account of all of this data mm-hmm. um, the fact that they're laughed out of it is because the understanding of science is much more narrow mm-hmm. you know there is a sense of like we have these scanners and we call that science yeah. whereas when it comes to religion these sorts of things aren't even resolved and and when you say we, you're talking about the body of professors, right? Yeah. So that means they have a majority of all come to that same conclusion, like a mutawatir almost understanding. Mm-hmm. So that's why where the spread of literacy, right, has really benefited them because now we could they have like a guild, yeah, right, and all these different societies, and they all publish stuff and agree, right, to the parameters, mm-hmm. right, or they implicitly agree to them. implicitly yeah. agree, yeah, implicitly agree yeah. to the parameters. Okay. We is this a problem? only with religions other than Judaism and Christianity? Because it's, uh, and I mean, I don't know enough about the field, but if I, what I recall from my comparative religion classes is that there is an orthodoxy when it comes, for instance, to teaching about the Bible, which is that it was written by people. We know that mm-hmm. Genesis was written over four periods. There's different authors, all that kind of stuff. And you just can't say that this is revelation, mm-hmm. right? So th- there is an orthodoxy. It's just that it's the secular, li- we're going to treat this book as literature, mm-hmm. right? So if we're, if the problem, is the, the concern I would have is that we're going to end up with, a, with an orthodoxy that says the same thing about Islam. Mm. We're just going to treat it like it's, it's, you know, it's a cultural fiction that people believe in, it's mythology, and that is the orthodoxy, and then you can't have an opinion outside of it. Yeah. Like, you can't have a faithful Christian in the academy, right? I mean, you can, but they can't teach it from that perspective. Yeah. They have to be right. like that. There's a, there's a guy who's a physicist. Um, he's a young earth creationist, which is crazy, but... Um, he just doesn't. He just teaches that the that the Earth is you know six billion years old or four mm. and a half billion years old, even though he doesn't believe what he's saying. Yeah. Well, there's uh, Stephen. Uh, what's his name? The intelligent design author. Stephen. Look him up real quick. Hold on. Uh, Do you know what is it? He's dead as well. The guy from Pennsylvania. <laughs> Stephen Meyer. Okay. Let me read you his biography. I mean, his stuff is pretty good. Stephen Meyer, okay, is an advocate of intelligent design. Now, someone else wrote his Wikipedia, obviously, because it says Stephen Meyer is an advocate of the pseudoscientific principle of intelligent <laughs> design. Okay, uh, he's saying basically why how why shouldn't can does, can intelligence and design be scientific, like uh, be natural? Mm-hmm. Why is it unnatural? Why is intelligence unnatural? So basically, he was. Let's see. Let's look at his background here. He graduated with a Bachelor of Science in Physics and Earth Science in 1981 from a Christian Whitworth College and worked as a geophysicist in uh, Atlantic Richfield Company. Don't know what that is. Shortly afterwards, he won a scholarship from the Rotary Club of Dallas to study at Cambridge University. He, atter- he a- earned his Ph.D. in History and Philosophy 
1991 from Cambridge. All right, so he's not playing games. His dissertation was entitled Of Clues and Clauses, a Methodological Interpretation of Origin of Life Studies. Okay, after gaining his PhD, he taught philosophy at Whitworth, then at Christian Palm Beach Atlantic University. Okay, he later ceased teaching to devote his type, uh, time to the intelligent design movement. Okay, so they make it sound like it's ridiculous, the intelligent design movement, right? Okay. Like it's a minority of people who advocate this. Uh, it's not a minority. I mean, all they're basically any Christian school, right? That's what, how they're going to approach things. But the point is, this guy, when you read his stuff, you'll be impressed, right? I was, I was impressed. I didn't even know who he was, right? Obviously, they're calling him here quack and making fun of him and everything like that. And it's supposed to be like, try to make, if you're on the fence, like you're, it's, he's unpopular. You don't want to say his name in public. You don't want to be associated with him. That's how they're, they're trying to push it here in this Wikipedia article. But check out his stuff. And his basic idea is, I'm going to show you that none of this parts of a specific organism, whichever one he's looking at, let's say the cell, mm-hmm. you need all of it to make any sense. And part of it, or a partial development of it, right, is useless. That's basically his thesis in a nutshell, and he gives you the examples uh, in his works. Now, this is a guy who is basically laughed out of the auditorium. Mm-hmm. so to speak you know but you know what what Elias was saying yeah I mean the the, the God doesn't feature in the academy so yeah. you know anything you're going to get regarding the Quran mm-hmm. any, well, any theory early theory of Islam well, the action of the prophet uh, Quran revelation it's all going to be reduced down to some you know now physical I have, now material cause or, we were discussing something the other day and sat me and uh, Sad Afridi. So we were discussing that uh, Sheikh Hamza, when he was on CNN recently, there was like 25 influential Muslims. They brought him on. And he said that when one of the accreditation uh, uh, body representatives came to Zaytuna and he asked the students and he attended a class on uh, one of Imam Zaid's classes. And he said, I'm really happy to see some of the students responding back to the professor and disagreeing with him. Right. Mm-hmm. And he said, now my question is, but can they disagree with the text, right? Because they want, that's what humanities is, right? Now, what one thing Sad said, like, right away, he's like, like, why is that like a sacred principle? Who is to say, if everything is to be questioned, then this principle too should be questioned. The principle that everything can be questioned is eaten up by itself. Because what happens if I, if I turn that principle on itself? Right. And I was uh, I, I remember in, in fourth or fifth grade when we were studying communism and they're like scaring us because there were still communists. There was, the USSR was still up. Right. So they were s- saying to us, well, they don't let you choose. Right. And here in America, they let you choose. We call it democracy over there. They don't get to choose. Mm-hmm. So I raised my hand and I said, well, what happens if all the people chose communism? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> So this whole thing with um, what we're saying about academia is that's fine. But what happens? It, it seems like a, uh, a proposition that can eat itself. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? If everything's up for question, then the concept that everything is up for question is also up for question. Sure. But I don't think but I think the, that's usually a conceit. It's like a fiction that, you know, um, that people tell themselves like, you know, I'm a free thinker or I'm. You so know, you're saying it's not even 
the case. No, know, definitely. I think when you, when you get down to it, everybody has foundational principles. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody has an idea of the world that they're working with and that they're trying to justify. They use these sorts of claims when they're trying to undermine things they don't like. But usually, you know, I mean, because the thing is, like, we're operating with these theories just to make the world intelligible. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, without, uh, without a theory of Tawheed, like, for example, in the khutbah that someone gave today, it's like you need, you need to have some way of making sense of everything. So we have our way of doing it, and other people have their ways. But to say that, you know, so when people are questioning these foundational things, that's when they start to invoke these ideas of, and if they don't have any good arguments against this, that's when they're going to be like, oh, well, you know, you guys just aren't thinking out of the box. Mm. You know, you guys aren't, usually tends, out, tends to be the case that, it's just a fancy way of saying you're not agreeing with yeah, my fundamentals. Exactly. You know, you know uh, what's his name? Uh, is it Hording from SOAS? Yeah. Is he still alive? Yes, he, uh, <laughs> I think he is. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. The students there, they used to call him Ibn Iblis. <laughs> so he's one of the ancient uh, Orientalists. Like, he's one of the old school Orientalists, right? So, one of the things that he used to do is he used to pop out this question that basically would go against everything that a Muslim knows. Right. To be true. And then if a Muslim kid would get upset, he said he would say, well, can't we just have an academic discussion? Right. So that was his line. What you just said, that it's a fancy way of saying that uh, you don't you you know, you're disagreeing with me or something or or why can't you agree with my position? Mm -hmm. So he used to do the same thing and say, like, can't we just have an academic discussion? You know, and you find that in the academy, actually one I won't I I won't mention any names, but one of the prominent who did do his Ph.D. uh, at a particular Ivy League university uh, found out that you know his supervisor was very eager to 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 break him you know mm-hmm. to uh, open his horizons yeah uh, I was fortunate that and I, that I that I and I mentioned this um, before to people that my supervisor despite being an orientalist um, I think he's just reached a point where he's too he's too old. He's like, <laughs> you know what? That's what I've been all my life. I just can't change anymore. But he's never interfered. He's he's never tried to uh, dictate to us what. And you pray person. openly and like you're open about your Islam. And yeah, he knows like where Sufis and we go to like like even he, he actually his wife is like a uh, uh, um, she's like a minister at the local church. Mm-hmm. And he's like, he has some problems because he has the same doubts about Christianity that he does about Islam. <laughs> like yeah. He applies the same standards. But um, At Yale, and I actually asked him, I asked him explicitly, like, how do you balance your Christianity with, because you probably have the same questions. And he's like, yeah, it's my academic side. That's my personal <laughs> side. My yeah. Personal yeah. side and, yeah. and, In, and it, at Yale, uh, I was, I guess, quiet. And then I got, I was, got tired of being quiet. So I just grew my beard again. And started going to Jummah, giving the khutbah, Allah, yeah. right? I just got tired of trying to play some game, mm-hmm. right? And then the uh, department head, he was a Muslim, Shiri guy uh, from Lebanon, right? And <laughs> he used to call me Alawi because I prayed five times a day. <laughs> Alawi. And honestly, the first time I heard it, I was like so happy. Like that's who you were attributing me to? That's my madhab in your view? That's my like group? I was like so happy, honestly, and the and the other guy was telling me like, I can't believe he said that about you. I was like, I'm like this like, I want to wear that like a badge of honor. And but then, but they they really didn't want like practicing Muslims around. It was obvious. No, we we we're like I can I think I can confidently say 
is that a lot of the Islamic studies professors enjoy it far more uh, interacting with students of knowledge. Mm. Melchert actually he wrote he wrote m- uh, me and Sheikh Suhail Hanif. Yeah. Uh, he wrote us an email at the end of our masters. Yeah. And he said it was a pleasure having you guys as students. If only more people could be like you. And he, he w- w- one of the things he said to me explicitly is that what's the, the problem with academics is they don't have a grounding in the tradition. Yeah. And yeah. the problem with traditionalists is they don't have a grounding in history usually. Yeah. Yeah. And he says, I, I, I'm, I'm waiting for someone who can combine both of them. Yeah. Uh, and, and because they recognize that, like, for example, like fiqh arguments, you know, you know, the, the, the normal guy who's going to academia, he, he, he's not able to detect the subtle shifts and changes and yeah. the fiqh arguments. He's not able to follow them, perhaps. As, as He probably as enjoyed, as even if you just guys differed with him, like, the enjoyed the sparring back yeah, and forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was fun. It was a fun time. And yeah. like I said, we were all, you know, we can just literally stop in the middle of the Oriental Institute and just pray. Like, uh-huh. in front of everyone. I, I no think one, England no is different, cares. too, because with the population, they sort of know they're putting the white flag up yeah. like we can't stop all these muslims from coming anyway so we might as well learn to live with them yeah that attitude like mufti like mufti kamaluddin who's at oxford he's like you know wherever he goes he's gonna he's gonna have his thumb on mm. you know, i still you know I, I wear my i'll dress like Ilyas without the tie uh, <laughs> but you know like we've had like madrasa grad people who are madrasa graduates who yeah. g- come to oxford mm-hmm. to do a phd in, in their traditional garb yeah and it seems like people are just per- and, okay. uh, and what do you think of the future of one of them you know being one of the professors and deans there it's, it, yeah it's a possibility mm-hmm. like uh, like I said Sheikh Afifi teaches for the Oriental Institute and yeah. he's you know recognized Shafi scholar um, uh, Dr. Talal Al-Azm mm-hmm. uh, student of Sheikh Nuh Keller uh, when I went when I did my PhD Sheikh Nuh told me specifically stick to Talal mm. you know, and he, w- he was my supervisor he was my master's supervisor which was a big blessing for me uh, because to have a you know a Muslim supervisor oh, so you can, you, can, you can tell him that you know, what is this nonsense that, yeah. <laughs> that they're teaching <laughs> and have an open discussion with him but there's, there are pitfalls too because we know I, I know of people who went into the academy as practicing Muslims yeah. even in the UK yeah. and who've come out like well, Islam is just a social construct. It's yeah. you know, they, they it's just an identity uh, and stuff like that. This is where yeah. me and Alex start pulling out like. Uh, so the risk. I'm, I'm going to go into your uh, your closet of artillery. <laughs> <laughs> and that's one of the reasons. Actually, that's one of the reasons I focused on this period that I focused on, yeah. because a lot of these people who focus on the earlier period have to like accept the paradigm of of, of, of the academy, and then 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 what do you do? You have it's to accept that. It's extremely frustrating well, the Quran to see is not people. Preserved. Yeah. And so for me, it was like, okay, if I, worst comes to worst, if I have to say Abu Hanifa wasn't as brilliant as, you know, we might make out to be. I mean, that's, that's okay. a total subjective yeah, exactly. statement. Yeah. It's not and, even academic. And, how yeah. dare you say that? <laughs> no, you know this whole idea of how the, the construction of the authority of the Mujtahid and stuff like yeah. that. I'm like, okay, whatever. Even if I say something like that, it's not an man issue for me, per se. Sure. You know? That's where our friend went wrong. He focused on, he focused on the Quran. Yeah. Like, yeah. That was his. That was his. His yeah. thing is like the development of the Quran. Yeah. And on f- it, so, speaking of that, there's there's an interesting way that some people like the Orientalists aren't like they used to be, right? So they're not they're not coming straight forward anymore, yeah. right? It's not like the old days of the Germans or whatever. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> but so now, like, you have like like uh, like Reynolds, right? Who he's gonna prom- he's gonna defend Christianity by saying that the Quran stole from the, from like Syriac Bible text, right? Yeah. So this is his way. He doesn't have to be uh, like going in there and saying Christianity is true and mm-hmm. the blood is purifying or whatever. He can just say, "Look, it's so true that the Quran stole yeah. from it." <laughs> <laughs> like, this is his defense. And he has priests that are students <laughs> in, in in the PhD program. Oh. So. Ha- Hamza, did you guys take the Islam classes at Rutgers? I only took one. Who taught it? Is it man? No, it was a Muslim guy. I forget his name. Right, give me, give me, take this name. Oh, it was uh, Professor Pavlin. 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 Yeah. Pavlin well, he's a practicing Muslim. He is, yeah. He has big beard. He wears like, the kufi and stuff. So what does he write? What is his... Well, the class we took was Prophet Muhammad, and I didn't... And I didn't like the class because the entire class was... Um, like you guys were talking about earlier, you had to learn about the Sirah um, and that period of time through non-Islamic sources. And if if you brought or both a, Islamic and non no only non-Islamic why only that was just because there, uh, Islamic sources weren't considered academic. Okay. Wow. So so well, like the, the what are the academic sources for, a period, for that period? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> we read like we read Bernard Lewis. Uh, we read some. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so we read Bernard Lewis, some of the other Orientalists, and um, yeah, but they're they're drawing from Ibn Hisham, and like, what are they drawing from that's different from the Muslim? Yeah, it's just their interpretation is different. Yeah, and and that that that's that's all we had to use, and like in in your paper, like because uh, we had a paper at the end, um, and if you, like, it was difficult for me because I are, I have understanding of the Prophet at that time, you know, through like what we learn as Muslims, and if you like say like the Israel Miraj. Right, that I don't think they they don't really accept that, right? Like how like oh how could that happen? See, I don't expect them to accept it, but I don't see how it's fair not to transmit what the earliest historians said, mm-hmm. and to say that they're not academic is to say that they have never even read Ilm al Rijal. So like, right? you weren't even exposed to like Sira literature, or no, it was it was just Western text, and it was it was a very basic class. So maybe in upper level classes it was different, but that's what I was supposed to. So how I see that's the thing I don't get. Like, how would you tolerate, uh, you know, presenting that anything that sort of you're gonna have you can present something that's that you don't believe in. I, that that I get that right, but I don't understand how you're gonna siphon out, yeah. right? The early uh, historical period and how you could say that that's that they they weren't using their what does academic mean? Like they weren't using their intellects. Ilm al Rijal. Even like they have their own Islam system though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What's his name? Uh, the the hadith. No, no, who Matsky refuted? The hadith encyclopedia. Shacht. Oh, uh, Yonbol. Yonbol. Yeah. Yonbol yeah. 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 has like he has like his own Islam system. You know. Yeah. yeah. The common link. The <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, so. Yeah. But it's uh, also, I mean it's also the fact that I mean there's an element of. Like getting into like the sources is a lot of hard work. Yeah. So it's very easy to make the methodological point of I'm not going. To, it's all you know. It's all a mess. So I'm not going to deal with any of it. It's yeah. easy. It, that's a much easier route to take. Mm-hmm. And the the route that, for example, you know, some of these like Moxky or even my own advisor uh, Michael Cook, like they started engaging with these sources and realizing that even from our critical, you know. Western academic perspective, which is again, even just one philosophy within the broader philosophies of history, you know, is not the only way to look at these sources. Um, they start to, they they start realizing that 
there's actually stuff here that makes a lot of sense. I think it's, uh, who is it, Michael Lecker that does a lot of creative work yeah. with some of these sources. And, you know, they're able to make some really, you know, like, again, for us, it's, you know, we have our own way of doing this through the Isnag, through, you know, the traditional techniques developed by the scholars of Hadith. But overall, um, you know, even from their Western perspective, their perspective that's critical of the tradition, they're able to do a lot with these sources. And especially in Hadith studies too, even when it comes to this Yunbal and his Islam yeah. analysis, uh, you know, they're, 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 they only have access, and this is what we see with a lot of studies, um, is that they're forming uh, theories and reaching conclusions based on uh, very small samples of, yeah. of, of work. That's so what, they'll, take like they'll take like Kitab al-Tahara in, 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 yeah. in a fiqh book that's and what generalize fiqh was. based yeah. on that. Yeah. Matsuki's uh, critique was that Shacht used like four sources. Yeah. yeah. And he drew his all his generalization from like four main sources. Yeah. If you were to do that as a dissertation now, like... Oh, you'd be blown out of the water. <laughs> and that's the thing is that uh, they were writing for a people who there was no one checking them, right? Mm-hmm. There was no... You know, where you didn't have two hundred people, you know, re, who were who had studied in different sp- locations and had different backgrounds and had hours and years of study, checking those work. That's why those works are already outdated because that, now that people woke up to it, they realize that that stuff is. Um, it was not just because we did disagree with the, the conclusion, mm-hmm. but because the method was drawing from so few resources, right, mm-hmm. and extrapolating such grand conclusions right that just couldn't stand up uh you know couldn't stand up to it when more resources were brought forth and more evidence was brought forth right it's like uh, in science you know early sciences had some laughable conclusions mm-hmm. and and he wasn't trying to be superstitious those scientists were limited with to certain evidence that they had or didn't have right and when they didn't have a lot of evidence to go on they came up with the conclusions that they could come up with and they were extremely limited. So, I mean, what, what we're doing increasingly now, like Ahmed Shamsi uses the word, which is we're doing like micro history. We're not doing grand histories anymore. Yeah. Yeah. We're doing micro histories. We're taking very specific issues or very specific peoples or texts and we're analyzing them. And uh, uh, Dr. Shadi stepping away, so I'm going to stop talking. No, keep going because those kids are making too much noise. I got to tell them. I'll, I'll stand there. Can you give me a shoe? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I got a better one. <laughs> So now that Dr. Shelley walked away, is a good opportunity for me to ask this question. That's that mic's not plugged in, so we're good. Um, so this is something I haven't been able to uh, find in my own research. Joseph Mekdesi related to George at all? Not that I know of. I'm not sure. Someone you know? No, I don't think so. That's crazy. Do you, do you guys know who that is? Right. He was the one who wrote on the was it the Maliki. He's he's the one that wrote that that all that British common law is yeah. derived from from Sharia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It's an interesting coincidence. Mm-hmm. Mashallah. Thanks, thanks for tuning in. <laughs> so Sheikh Salman, um, how how are you liking? Uh, how long has it been since you were back in the states? Uh, Do you come every year? I was actually in Jersey like four years ago. I stayed. At, I always stay at Wasim's house. You know, it seems like my. Oh, house. so you're not staying in Long Island. Uh, I know I am staying in Long Island, but whenever I come to Jersey to visit, okay. I stay at Wasim's okay. house. Um, but 
Yeah, I, de- I didn't. I guess we all kind of lost touch after we, you know, I mean, like we used to meet sometimes at like yeah. the Sahman stuff. Yeah. But then after that, I think we went our separate ways and everyone well, you, sort you of reunited on Twitter. You went to Jordan. <laughs> yeah, I did go. Yeah. So you were, a little, you were a little far for a visit. Yeah, that's true. That's true. No, but I was telling Shadi that I've known you for quite a while. Yeah. Um, it's uh, it's it's when you uh, it it's it's companionship. That's yeah, the no, the literal trend. Yeah, like it's an event. Oh, um, yeah. So it's it's kind of like Isna for uh, for like the more Sufi type people. <laughs> it's like mi- mini Isna. I don't know. So there's uh, there's a uh, sheikhs come. Um, by the way, are you uh? Do you see uh, Sheikh Mohammed Isawili? Uh I've seen him a few times, but not that often. I think How far away is he? He's in London, right? Yeah, he's in London, Yeah, which is about two hours from me. So I, I'll see him at events here and there, but I think he's mostly busy just at, uh, at work. Oh, I don't know if he's retired or not, but he's quite, he's quite old now. He's spending a l- he was in he Pennsylvania recently. Hmm. He yeah. was out at... Uh, okay. Yeah, he was at Makassar with... Uh, yeah, we should, we should hear here. Yeah, I just see, I mostly see him at the Sohbas in the UK. Uh, that's about it. Oh, you guys want to program Sunday? Uh, I can't. Yeah, I was going to, but I can't. Uh, Habib Hussein is going to be. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I saw the advertisement. Me and Wasim were talking about the retreat. Mm. I'm giving the mic back up to Dr. Shadi. No, please. Where'd we leave off at? Um, Hakif and. I mean, I'm still. No, I was telling I was I was telling Dr. Shadi that the discussions that we used to have back in our day were like madhabs and yeah. does God have a hand and yeah, <laughs> those were the those the were things the that people that, who cared about which we're still having in the UK now, you know. So I went to the UK thinking that okay, you know, we're going to be tackling LGBT and yeah. these things. You know, these are the challenges of the time. And we're still talking about like no, we didn't progress. Yo, know, we regressed. You still got people calling each other wobblers. And <laughs> <laughs> no, we regressed. And the funny thing is that we were talking about is that I showed the guys an article from the Guardian, which said that actually, let me read it to you here. <clears throat> uh, really funny article. Sheikh Abdullah bin Hamid Ali sent it to me. Okay, he said here. All right, he sent me this Gar- Guardian article, right? I've been trying to uh, to swear off talking about this subject. Is this the one about it's the like a diet? Yeah. Yeah, 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 it's like those people who try to go on diets and stuff, but they fail. I've been trying to like go like a month without talking about this subject. All right, so here's the article. It's really funny. He said the problem with right here. Twenty years ago, Hasbro, a major American toy manufacturing company, tested a playhouse it hoped to market to both boys and girls. It makes sense because if you can market a toy to both boys and girls, you make more money. It soon emerged that girls and boys did not interact with the structure in the same way. The girls dressed the dolls, kissed them, and played house. The boys catapulted the toy baby carriage from the roof. (laughs) A Hasbro manager came up with a novel explanation. Boys and girls are different. So the funny thing was that uh, Yusuf, who's been on this podcast a couple times, he said that it's amazing how we come up with the most amazing technology, but on fundamentals of being a human being we are lost right and we're like that is now a discussion and a discovery right and a discussion and it needs to be discovered whereas i mean look at just the fact of how we're recording this podcast 
right? And the techno- very simple technology is like a commodity. You know, got garage band on a Mac is like a commodity, no big deal. But it's amazing, right? The disparity of our technology versus our understanding of our own selves. Well, this is outside of the like religious studies realm. This is a place where acad- academia has had tremendous impact on society, all negative. Mm. And it's it's in this idea that everything is just, you know, it's a power narrative and yeah. n- there is no actual facts. Which, by the way, we were, uh, Wasim was saying that science is, you know, at least that's uh, that's being challenged. Yeah, yeah. Mm, yeah. Starting with biology, but it's going to go down the line with everything else, right? Mm. Like somebody was saying on, on Twitter not too long ago, he was like, I'm so glad I'm an engineer. There's no such thing as postmodern <laughs> engineering. And I was like, yeah, right. Here's <laughs> a paper, <laughs> right? So what do they question? The right angle or something? No, like what, 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 what? Like, like your ninety like degrees civil, is not my ninety degrees. Civil engineering, right? Like building design and why certain structures are built the way they are, and what is the what are the cultural and political implications of it? Even like the scientific method is, sure. like Mobin shared a bunch of articles. He shared a bunch of you, you all know Mobin, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mobin. Like he shared a number of articles on, on Facebook. Someone was having a discussion, uh, and he was like, "No, even the scientific method has been." You know, uh, uh, is under is under attack. And, uh, and he's like, people what are who are outside. Looks like? Unfortunately, I didn't read the articles, so <laughs> I will read them. But I'm just throwing that out there. So you know, in case he listens, to, if he if he listens to this podcast, he can. Aren't you an engineer, something, below Something yeah. more about that, huh? I am. What kind of engineering did you do? Industrial engineering. There's only one way to do industrial engineering, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, it's interesting because so the the major ideas is to is the fact that. Like as I was saying before, science tends to progress um, blind to its own assumptions. So what philosophers and historians of science do is they challenge this. Like, oh, you think gravity has been this since forever? Well, the meaning of gravity has been changing, and based on that, that's how these different theories came about. You know, uh, so. no problem yeah. with uh, we're going to discuss uh, or you know relook at what we imagine gravity to be, but there's no change in behavior based on on that. We're still believing that what goes up is going to come down. We're still behaving. Sure. Except, but it's the, it's the idea is that what, how we're explaining why the thing that we drop mm-hmm. drops. Yeah. You know, even the words we use like drop or, you know, the fact that we're like the forces that we're saying account for this. That's sort of like that's where like these this realm of debate comes in. And it's not so much the idea that, you know, it's just that we didn't have certain information that we have now. It's that our perspectives on the whole world have changed. Yeah. So that's where the. So the I think that stuff begins. is fine. That stuff is cool. But yeah. now, if you're telling me that we're going to change the way we behave on that, that's a big deal, right? The, the problem is that, like, what ends up happening is, so I mean, I think um, Shaggy Hamid had a tweet where he actually he pointed this. I don't know if he had this in mind, but the idea that he said that the problem with um, center uh, with centrist Democrats is that they tend to view politics as a technocratic problem. It's all about um, it's all about finding the right policy to s- solution to um, principles or you know ideals and values that we've already all agreed on. So they don't want to think about big mm, picture things, I see. you know, like Bernie Sanders or that. They'll dismiss yeah. him. He's like, "Where's the policy solution?" Mm. And what he's like, his critique. So there, is like, there's fixed structure. Yeah. And well, they're exactly like us then, because we're not like we're not budging out of our structure, right? But his critique of them is that this makes them. Um, they're not able to argue on the level of big ideas. And that's a similar thing to what happens in science is that like your average science is not your average scientist is not being taught like the philosophical, you know, yeah. underpinnings of their religion. You think they're not able or not willing? 
I think their belief just, is so strong that these principles are universally, uh, you know, mm-hmm. they're universal. They're not to be just, they're self-evident. Sure. That to even discuss them is taking a step back. Well, I think the problem is that um, people forget. Like, it's very easy to forget where you came from mm-hmm. so that where you are now, you know, it's just sort of a, It's like how I think, like, for a lot of our history, like, we haven't had to defend some very basic fundamentals of our religion yeah. because they weren't being actively challenged, mm-hmm. you know. And then where we find periods where there's a lot of activities, when there are these challenges, like there's mm-hmm. sectarian debates or, you know, this mudhub is fine, this mudhub on this particular mm-hmm. issue, and we actually have a lot of literature related to that. So I think it's the same type of phenomenon where it's only now in our society that all of these foundations, whether it's in science, whether it's in our beliefs about gender or whatever, that we start to say, um, that now there's this, you know, there are these rival philosophies coming out and these rival um, ways of looking and ways of thinking and mm-hmm. just challenges where people are like, well, you know, why do you believe that, you know, a male has to be this way and a female has to be that way? And because we've been operating for like for such a long time without having those fundamental beliefs challenged, we actually, it's very hard for us to. We actually know, haven't formulated an answer. Yeah. In, some, in some questions. Yeah. Exactly. And one. Um, one book that I think captures this dilemma um, quite brilliantly is Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue. Yeah. This, guy, this guy was the... Is this the same Alistair McIntyre that... He's the famous Alistair McIntyre. The famous uh, Satanist? No, no, no. That's Alistair Crowley. Okay, yeah, they, sorry, he, I got my guys this, this, uh, confused. By the way, not just, not just Satanist, but also propagandist for the British... During the war. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that. Sorry Sorry about that. Okay. (laughs) So McIntyre is a major. um, He's 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 uh, he's a Catholic. I don't know if he was Catholic at the time of writing this book because he had a conversion during his um, during his career. But he's a major moral philosopher. And one of the arguments he was making is, you know, one like okay, this is his perspective on like what's happening. But he's pointing out a problem that none of our major like. There seems to be all of these moral philosophies competing with each other, and there's no room for, like, there, it just seems like it's an interminable yeah. debate. And he starts off his book by basically posing, what if these are all different answers to different historical questions that came up? There's actually no coherence there, and we've actually all forgotten what all of these things emerged out of. Mm-hmm. And this, is his part, this becomes part of his broad, broader project to revive Aristotelian thinking mm-hmm. and virtue ethics. And so his major idea is that, you know, we used to, like, one of the reasons we seem to be lost, like, he, like his way of putting it is we've lost moral philosophy at a cultural level because the people don't really talk about it. Philosophers are off in their own departments talking about their own min- minuscule things. And nobody really knows how to talk about, nobody really knows how to have a firm moral debate on anything. Mm-hmm. It always boils down to, well, that's your opinion on this. His argument is that, you know, basically what we lost was the Aristotelian heritage. And that part of what we need to relearn, because it's such a foreign civilization, because it was like 304 years ago, is how to actually think like that, how to actually build a society off of that. And I think that's where, you know, one way we might think about what's been happening with, within Islam and with, you know, the Muslim tradition, like trying to recapture, well, what was it like prior to colonialism? Well, I want to bring up something then, a little challenge to this. When I look at um, Vicar Knight, Vicar Knight is before my 7.30. John. 
But I want to I want to challenge you, sure. not challenge you, but the idea. And I want to say this: the leaders of a civilization or a nation, okay, the founders of a nation or the leaders of a tribe or what or a nation, okay, they can discuss these things, and they are the likeness of the parents to the house. Your common folk, right? Yeah. And okay, I guess that's going to be challenged. Is there elite and common? I would say there definitely is elite in common, right? There are people who think about things and go into certain discussions. And there are, those discussions are over the head of so many people who want something way more simple, which is a, st- a stabilized society, sure. a law that's known, and unity and agreement, right? They're not going into those underpinnings of, of those issues. And it is the leadership of a civilization. Their job is to elucidate these things. Sure. Right. And then once they agree, they have to maintain it now because now civil society is based on accepting these assumptions. Right. Otherwise, we're going to have to flip our law upside down every few years. Right. So the roots of the tree have to say the same. The trunk grows over time. The branches grow out and the leaves come and go every year. The leaves come and go. Right. So likewise, the assumptions upon which a civilization is based, okay, has got to be fixed. So, yeah, he's saying what he's saying makes sense. But I'm saying, how can you put that out there for public discussion? The roots of the society. Why did America grow and succeed and have this uh, century that they had? It's because when they came out, the founding father said, this is what it is. Right. Okay. It was only a few guys. They said, this is what it is. Here's the Constitution and move forward. And those original things weren't questioned, weren't rediscussed. You didn't see like uh, the third election. Let's go back and revisit. Right. No, it was all accepted. So firstly, I know that people are going to challenge the, the analogy of the elite and the common. Right. And the parents and the children in the house. Right. But I really think when you're if we're if we're being practical and honest. Right. That's really is how leaders and people are, right? And if we don't have that assumption, then you're going to have to change everything you do and everything you understand all the time. You know what I'm saying? I think the issue, the, the, the issue I find Hamza, what is, do you think? I agree. You agree? Good. The thing is the roots... I, I think there are assumptions... Uh, he wasn't even paying attention, was he? <laughs> When, when you talk about assumptions, you talk about like funda- uh, the fundamentals upon which our civilization yeah, yeah, is The based. fundamentals, the yeah. things that you could put down in yeah. uh, broad vision, no, non-specific. But the thing is, today, I think one of the problems is that mm. we identify as fundamentals things that can demonstrably be shown as, his, you know, phenomenon that arose as a result of a particular historical situation or historical context and so on and so forth. So if I look at if you look at the UK, something like the UK, when I brought up this issue of Rasam al Mufti, you know, the principles of Ifta, uh, you know, Taqlid, it arose because to address some of these needs, to address, you know, consistency in the law, the court needs a consistent, you know, uh, legal code to apply, uh, because when the law is indeterminate, then that creates problems in society. Mm-hmm. People need to know what the law is. Uh, there are, of course, discussions on uh, indiv- the, 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 
the waning abilities of people to engage the law and derive it. But even that's up to dispute because, you know, plenty of jurists said that, no, ijtihad is easier in later times. It's mm-hmm. just that we're lazy. We're lazy people. Mm-hmm. Uh, like many of the Hanbalis would uh, uh, said this. And so, you know, I, I wrote about this very recently, which was that um, the madhab is a structure. Like we, we, underst- we, we identify the madhab as an integral part of the Sunni tradition. You know, it's how we've accessed the, the, the access revelation, how we interpret revelation, how we've done it for the past thousand years. Okay? But the structure of the madhab has changed from the time of Imam Abu Hanifa up until now. You know, Abu Hanifa wasn't working with a Rasam al-Mufti tradition where you have to follow the Mu'atamad, where you have to follow the Mashur, uh, and, and so on and so forth. But because that particular framework has you know, found itself uh, in the realm of orthodoxy, that almost, it becomes, uh, or it's, it's, it's viewed as part of that root system. And now, in the UK, if I go, you know, uh, and, and, and even attempt to tweak that system or challenge it, then it's like, no, you're, you're, you're challenging something that's foundational to our religion. Why are you challenging it? Even the idea of, you know, if you look at like economic historians, okay, uh, the rate of change right now is unprecedented. Whether you, you look at it from the econo- e- economic perspective, whether you look at it from the, uh, uh, the technological revolution, the information revolution, the madhabs were operating in a society that, were, that, that changed very slowly. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the, the, the pace of change was very slow. And law always lags behind social progress. Right. We know this. But, you know, when you look at the U.S., I think in the, in the uh, 18th century, the U.S. was probably publishing, you know, you, you could probably fit all the laws of America in like two, three volumes or something like that. Now, there's like a volume kind of like every month Question with, for with, you. with new rules and stuff because they have this huge bureaucratic system. And for us, our model is an ijtihad model. You come together, you debate an issue for like five years. You know, you wait for it to enter into the realm of orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. By that time, there's like a mil- that issue's not even there anymore. Yeah. There's like a million other issues. Now, here, here's a question for you, though. If you have an assumption upon which a group is, is built, and that assumption is not false, let's say within Islam, it's acceptable. Sure. But it's subjective, mm-hmm. right? Subjective. Uh, let's say the manner in which a nikah is done. We would ask, we ask the groom or the, the father of the bride to give his daughter in marriage to the groom, right? And the Ahnaf do it opposite, right? It's the man, the groom, asks the bride for her hand in marriage, okay? So there's subjectivity there, right? My question is this. If that subjectivity is not harming anything, we agree it's subjective, but the overall a type of unity and simplicity is being brought forth. Why disrupt things? Or forget that because that's not a big deal because that's like uh, very small. But how tarawih is prayed, for example. Mm-hmm. It could be prayed very differently. It could be prayed four rakas in one shot, right? Like Just like Salat al-Aisha. But all four of them are out loud with the short surahs, mm-hmm. like the Turkish method, right? Versus the way we normally pray, two rakas with long recitations and finish the Quran in a month. Okay? Now, you have that's subjective, but this is what the whole community knows. Why change it? Why come and disrupt people's Yeah, you ways? don't have to disrupt anything. 
So that's what I'm saying is that when you have something, sub, even if it's subjective, the only reason to make a change is that there's harm outweighing this, uh, keeping things the same. Yeah, uh, you're right, Sheikh. And I think that also there's there's a concern um, about trying to have the law keep up with changing social norms, right? Especially when they change so rapidly. So you can't just because even then you're just being reactionary, mm-hmm. right? So you have to you have to look and say, well, what's this going to mean in ten years? And we don't even know what's going to happen in ten years. So maybe we're addressing something that's a serious concern today. But if we make this change, it's going to have long-term implications. And maybe changing it again or even bringing it back, right, like pulling back the change, this might, this might be more difficult than just addressing this, this issue now in this way. Um, All right, Sheikh Abdullah has arrived, so we're going to close this one out and we'll start a new one, inshallah. Jazakum la khairan, subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Nashadu an la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruk wa natubu ilayk wal asr inna al-insana lafi khusr illa al-ladhina amanu wa aminu al-salihat wa tawasaw bil-haq wa tawasaw bil-sabr. Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullah.